Professor Phil Lawn, welcome to Scotonomics. Oh, thank you for now, having me. <laughs> we're, we're, very, we're very happy to have you. So uh, I just want to share with our audience as well, we've just had a discussion before the programme started and we've discovered that Phil ha is just chock full of Scottish DNA. <laughs> so so we're really we're really happy to hear that Phil. So, so today we want to talk to you about the genuine progress indicator which separates the concept of societal progress with economic growth. So Phil you developed and advanced the use of the genuine progress indicator. Can can you explain to our audience why you started working on this metric? Okay. Well, I didn't in fact develop it. Uh this thing called the Genuine Progress Indicator, or GPI, did start off as something else. It was called an in horrible name, and it's the main reason why the name changed, it was called an Index of Sustainable Economic Welfare. Uh, but I, um, when I was doing my PhD thesis, uh, because I'm an ecological economist, and it was an ecological economist, Herman Daly, who developed the original Index of Sustainable Economic Welfare, um, I was talking about it in my thesis and I thought, well, it hasn't been calculated for Australia, so I calculated it for Australia. Um, and the main, uh, there's, a, there's a quite a significant misunderstanding about the genuine progress indicator. A lot of people think that it's supposed to be a measure of total well-being, and it's not. Uh, so the genuine progress indicator starts on the basis that nature provides us with all these services. Uh, and what we do is that we extract natural resources from the natural environment in order to add value to those resources so that the benefits that we get from the things that we consume are much greater, having engaged in economic activity, than we get from nature alone. But of course, it comes at a cost. Uh, so when uh, we extract natural resources from the environment, we turn them into goods and services and they ultimately become waste. That imposes uh, ecological costs and the process of extracting resources, transforming them into final goods and services requires human beings to organise themselves. That comes at a cost as well. There's a social cost associated with it. Uh, there's overwork costs, there's, uh, and that can lead to uh, cost of crime. Uh, and of course, uh, some people who would like to engage in the process of transforming resources into final goods and services, in other words, would like to work, can't find work. So there's the cost of unemployment and underemployment. So the genuine progress indicator aims at measuring the benefits of economic activity and uh, measuring the costs, you just sum the benefits. I, I know it's going to sound fairly simple. Just sum the benefits, uh, the major benefits of economic activity, sum the major costs, or subtract the costs from the benefits. So the genuine progress indicator is really just a measure of net benefit, benefits okay. minus costs. Now, incredibly, because people will find this quite extraordinary, because uh, in many ways economics is about separating benefits from costs, but it's only done at the microeconomic level. For some reason, at the macroeconomic level, economists think that just more is better, irrespective of whether or not it adds in the, uh, much in the way of benefits or incurs much in the way of costs. And of course, something's only really worthwhile, I'm going to sound like an economist now, um, if 
in doing it, the extra benefits exceed the extra costs. So if, if in doing something, everything we do comes at a cost. It, it's, it's virtually impossible to have no cost because there's some resources being used and there's, so that there's always a resource cost. Um, uh, and, of course, we do it in order to generate benefits. So as long as the additional benefits exceed the extra costs, then the genuine progress indicator rises and that indicates that that economic activity has been beneficial. Uh, whereas with GDP, irrespective of whether the activity is beneficial or not, in fact, one of the things that can increase GDP, gross domestic product, which is the main indicator used to, by mainstream economists to gain an indication of what's happening to the welfare contribution of economic activity, is that, uh, for example, uh, one of the best examples was back about 30 years ago, uh, it was an oil tanker, the Exxon Valdez, ran aground uh, on the coast of uh, Alaska, spilled its oil. Uh, I, I might just point out that at the state or provincial level, and you can even have it at the county level, it, it's, it's referred to as gross state product rather than gross domestic product. But, and the reason why that's important is because what the US federal government did uh, upon the oil damaging the, the coast of Alaska is it uh, allocated huge quantities of resources to clean up the oil spill. And that massively boosted the gross state product of Alaska. So its gross state product went through the roof, but of course, Alaska wasn't any better off. So uh, all the gross state product did was rise because there was an increase in the volume of economic activity. Even though it was a rehabilitative measure, it wasn't a welfare increasing measure, it was just a rehabilitative measure. So GDP just is a monetary measure of the volume of economic activity, whether it's for good or for bad, whether it's defensive, rehabilitative, and so forth. Whereas the genuine progress indicator uh, measures the benefits. So uh, there may not have been any... <laughs> Clearly, cleaning up the oil spill was important, but it was only, if it was effective, restoring the coastline to what it was previously. So overall, there were no additional benefits, but it came at great resource costs. So whereas the gross state product of Alaska went up, if uh, the genuine progress indicator being measured for Alaska, it would have gone down. No additional benefits, but increased costs. So the GPI would have fallen when the GSP, gross state product, um, was rising. The other thing about the gross uh, domestic product or gross state product uh, uh, that's um, excluded and or omitted and, and uh, is included in the, uh, a genuine progress indicator is the value of unpaid work. So work done in the household is beneficial. A meal cooked in the kitchen that's fed to the family uh, is a form of economic activity in a sense, but it's not being paid for. It's not counted in the GDP, but it's counted in the genuine progress indicator. And it's, and it's huge. Uh, so that and volunteer the value of volunteer labour is included in the GPI, whereas it's excluded in the GDP. And and one of the reasons why that's important is because I need to I need to do this um, um, a, a little little more carefully and, and perhaps write a paper about this at some point. But uh, I've done a, a back of the envelope calculation, and I've estimated that about twenty five to thirty percent of the increase in GDP of most Western nations over the last fifty years has been due to nothing more than economic activity shifting from the informal economy, that's the unpaid 
economy to the formal economy, which doesn't represent an increase in economic activity, but of course it, incre- it, it, it appears as an increase in economic activity in the national accounts. So the GDP can go up simply because something has moved from the informal economy to the formal economy. That's not the case with the GPI. There'd be no change because... Be fascinating to see those figures, you know, yes. in, in detail because it makes it makes complete sense that so much has moved from the unpaid to, to paid sector. Mm. So with the GPI, the uh, as as the unpaid moves to the paid sector, it's it's counted in the uh, GPI as, as as marketed goods. But what goes down, of course, is the value of unpaid labour that goes down as the other goes up. So they just cancel each other out. Whereas in the G- so you you can get not only the false impression that uh, benefits are going up because GDP with GDP because GDP just is a measure of the volume of economic activity. It's not even a correct measure of the volume of economic activity because it only measures that which are captured by markets, not which are captured by, well, not captured by markets, which is occurring in the unpaid or informal uh, section of, of sector of the economy. So that's really interesting, uh, you know, that you use the term rehabilitative. I mean, I uh, learned, you know, maybe four years ago about this this term referred to as externalities, you know. So for mm. Exxon, um, the oil spill was an externality, which the state had to um, pay uh, and rehabilitate um, this company's externality. Um, mm. You know, and, you know, when you know, understand this, you see it everywhere. Um, it's and and it's really distressing to see how much of it occurs and 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 that it's somehow swept under the carpet. Um, you, you you know it's it seems to be sort of swept under the carpet. So my next two questions, you really covered them actually. So I, I was going to ask you about the it's measured the GPI is measured by twenty six indicators, and I was thinking of the cost, particularly of a disaster that we had here. In, in Scotland, and it was when the Piper Alpha uh, exploded and 167 men were lost in 1988. So um, I learned very recently, actually, that a child of one of the people who was killed on the Piper Alpha actually committed suicide as a young adult. So this seemed to me a very long-term mm. externality from um, the Occidentals, drilling in the North Sea. Yeah. And I wondered about just mm. how expensive that is. Mm. You know, when you lose people violently um, mm. and, and unexpectedly and all the ripples that come from that. So obviously there would be the relation the, the the wives who were no longer longer able to work. Um mm. the, the children who were traumatized um couldn't perform mm. at school. All of those things rippling out from those deaths, they would be yeah. huge. Have you have you examined anything like that before? It's very difficult to capture individual things, but a number of these items do capture these things in a way. Uh, so uh, if people are indirectly affected mentally or physically uh, because of something like that, then usually they will require... Healthcare, uh, some sort of uh, service provided by the health sector, uh, a major proportion of all health expenditure is classed as a defensive or rehabilitative expenditure. So it's not added to the GPI. 
So, yeah, you could traumatise the entire population. Everyone needs an increase in health services and the GDP goes up, but the genuine progress indicator wouldn't. Right. Yeah. So in that sense, it sort of captures it. Um, these 26 benefit and cost items, they're fairly general, but they uh, they don't capture specific things, but you'd like to think that a number of, a lot of those things would be captured within the more generalised cost or benefit item. So it's not a, it's not a perfect indicator. No, no indicator is perfect. Uh, so uh, there are a lot of critics of, of the GPI and, and, and you might even ask a question about how, how do you measure some of these things? It's not easy. Uh, but I think from a purely theoretical point of view, uh, I think the GPI is sound. There are problems. I'll admit there are problems in the way you measure certain things. But for those who are critical of the GPI because of the way certain things are measured, I just invite them to come up with a better valuation method. That's all I, I say. So you shouldn't really throw something out just because the valuation methods aren't uh, uh, appropriate or adequate. Um and use something which is clearly inadequate, like the GDP, which certainly is not an indicator, a clear indicator of, of our well-being or the welfare contribution of economic activity. So, and getting back to the defensive and rehabilitative expenditures and how that's not included in the GPI, but of course it adds, if there's an increase in, in, in those, it adds to GDP. Uh, uh, what I have noticed is that the percentage of all economic activities that are of a defensive and rehabilitative nature is increasing. So a greater percentage of all economic activities are welfare maintaining rather than welfare increasing. That's uh, so that's another thing that's boosting the GDP, which isn't really adding to our well-being. And, of course, it's not included in the GPI. And we're, and we're likely to see more of this with climate change. So, you know, it, we hear of two ways to deal with climate change. There's obviously the mitigation, trying to uh, do things that limit the the rise in uh, global temperatures. Uh, but given that's going to happen to some extent anyway, then there's adaptation. Well, adaptation measures, as much as they will be needed, they will add to GDP, but they won't add to the GPI. In fact, the resource cost will be will go up. So, in fact, the GPI could quite easily go down. So that's showing or revealing the, the welfare impact, the negative welfare impact of climate change, whereas in some ways climate change uh, you could imagine the Netherlands with, with uh, sea level rise. That they could be, I mean, this I might be exaggerating, but they, they might be uh, spending half of their GDP just trying to raise the dike walls so that the country still exists. Yeah, uh, so their GDP could be rising faster than any country on earth simply because they're working like crazy to uh, not be inundated with seawater, which is adding to their GDP, but it certainly won't be making them better off. In fact, it might make them worse off because resources that could go to improve the well-being of people are just being allocated to maintain their welfare. Yeah, but it's very clear to me that GDP is really um, all for a coat and no knickers as far as um, being a measure is concerned. Yeah. But if you were a politician, you were advising politicians, mm. would mm. you uh, advise them to look at a basket of measures? With the GDP, uh, if, if, you're, if you're after a monetary measure of the volume of economic activity, don't, don't go anywhere else other than GDP. It, you don't go past the GDP. It's the perfect measure of or monetary measure of the volume of economic activity. So if that's what you want, fine, GDP. 
but uh, I would say to politicians that, you know, if you want a genuine measure of progress, which is why it's called the, the genuine progress indicator, uh, then you should be thinking about the, the GPI. Now, I have dealt with politicians. I, in fact, uh, was paid by the South Australian state government to calculate the GPI for South Australia about four or five years ago. Um, it was, it was uh, more of a, um, a trial calculation. And but, but interestingly, in the state that I live in, South Australia, um, the per capita gross state product Remember, that's, that's the state equivalent of GDP. Uh, the per capita gross state product of South Australia is lower than a lot of other states, but its per capita GPI is higher than the other states. Um, and uh, I showed that to these po politicians, but uh, uh, it was just prior to a state election, and I think they were in campaign mode. And I, I really think they could have used the, the results that I produced to aid their campaign, the, the, the state government at the, at the time. Uh, but they chose not to do that. But um, the great problem with the GPI is it's up against a thing called the GDP or the GSP at the state level. And one of the things about GDP and GSP is apart from the odd little recession here and there, it goes up. So it appears like a good news indicator. Whereas now, Because uh, I haven't really told you much about the GPI results. For some countries, the GPI is going nowhere. So the additional benefits of economic activity, increased economic activity, are being matched by the increased costs. And in some cases, it appears as though the additional costs are exceeding the extra benefits and the GPI is falling. Politicians aren't interested in that. They don't want to put up a graph uh, or something on a whiteboard or, or what have, something in the background as they're talking, uh, showing things uh, during the period in which they're in power in government uh, going downwards when they've got something that always generally is always on the rise. Yeah, yeah you absolutely hit the nail on the head there. That is one of the issues with any measurement of uh, the economy is that politicians want to see it rising. And even mm. when there's an understanding that it rising isn't causing any benefit to society, they still want to see the line go up. And everyone, you know, it's, it's part of human nature, you know, growth. Yes. Growth is related to, to things like acceleration and advancement and productivity, and you want to see that go up. So I think that you've, you've just really summarised, I think, some of the really good things about the um, progress indicator and some bad things about the GDP. Um, do yeah. you think the only reason that it's not used is because of that, that line going up, or do you think there's other reasons that governments use GDP? Because uh, well, firstly, it, it's it's not as easy to measure as you think. It it has taken a lot of work and a lot of revision over time to uh, measure it relatively accurately. It's become easier only because of the fact it's been measured for such a long period of time, and a lot of people worked on it and have now developed methods. So if if we did something with the GPI, I'm sure the GPI would be relative easy than uh, a situation where I myself is just calculating the GPI for a country or, or, a, or a state which is where I don't have expertise in certain areas and I have to use the literature in, in an area in the environmental field where I'm, you know, I'm not an expert to try and calculate the, the dollar value of the cost of environmental damage. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I don't see why the GPI should be any more difficult to measure than the GDP. Other reasons why uh, politicians uh, don't 
well, are more likely to accept the GDP is, uh, uh, you're probably, again, getting me onto a subject that I'm not um, an expert in. I'm one of these who believes that uh, we don't really (laughs) live in democratic societies at all. I think uh, that um, we largely live in plutocracies and uh, the people uh, uh, that supposedly represent us in government uh, are very much or the policies that they implement and the, perhaps the indicators that they use are very much influenced by um, those who are, um, I guess, paying the political donations uh, and, and and so forth. I, I, yeah, I, I'm I'm not not a big uh, fan of uh, fan of uh, political institutions. I think they're they're quite antiquated. In Australia, we have political institutions that have have been designed based on the sort of British. Westminster system that were established in late 19th century by a small number of white men who I think were just trying to give the impression that they were sharing power, but they really set them up in such a way as to ensure that you know power still resided with a small number of people. So, yeah, uh, why don't we get politicians using the right indicators? Well, I think it's because it's not convenient for those people who have a, an interest in GDP rising, who have a big impact on the policies implemented by 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 political parties, governments, and so forth. Yeah, yeah. I'm a bit yeah. cynical there. <laughs> Again, I'm I'm not a political scientist, so I'm not an expert in that field. But uh, uh, it's just that, given all the evidence that we've had in relation to, say, the natural environment and and so forth for the last 40, 50 years, climate change for the last 20, 30 years, no action really being taken. You have to ask the question, why not? We, you know, we've got the information, really. Why isn't occurring? And, and I can only say it's not occurring because it's not in the interest of those who really are in control uh, to um, make the changes that are for the betterment of the general population when it's not in their interest. I, I don't know. No, I, I think, Phil, you, you can see that continuing into this idea of a, a sustainable develop, a sustainable growth and also a green economy. And you often hear yeah. politicians saying the climate crisis is a, a, a big threat, but it's also this wonderful opportunity. And we're still looking at the climate crisis through this prism of of capitalism and, and, and neoliberalism is yeah. this, well, we will do really well out of this because of, and this happens in Scotland, we hear this a lot, Scotland will be, mm. Scotland will do well because we've got all of these resources and the world has just and must change to such a degree that you can't look, you can't be so insular and think that we've got mm. this, it's how about we solve this on a, a global scale. Do you think there's any mm. way that we can start looking at this outside of this economic capitalist neoliberal framework we've got to actually start to work towards solving this rather than seeing who gets the biggest share of the pie from solving this? Uh, well, if we're talking about climate change, um, in my book, I, I do start off by saying that climate change by itself is like a lot of global environmental problems and also social problems, I think, um, is not a problem in itself. It's a symptom of a much larger problem. And now I'm talking as an ecological economist, uh, a lot of the problems that we face are 
simply due to the fact that we're in global overshoot. And by that, I mean that the global economy and in order to maintain it, given the scale of it now, requires a rate of throughput. That's an input of resources and an output of waste, which now far exceeds the regenerative and waste assimilative capacities of the natural environment. You may have heard of another indicator, which I sometimes refer to, but it's an ecological indicator rather than an economic indicator. The GPI is an economic indicator, and that's the ecological footprint. Have you heard of the ecological footprint? So the ecological footprint uh, measures our demands on the natural environment in terms of resources. Uh, we can recycle some materials, but it requires additional energy. Um, if you know anything about some two basic physical laws, the laws of thermodynamics, first and second laws uh, of thermodynamics, um, what enters the economy as resources to produce goods and services ultimately ends up as waste. Uh, because of uh, this overshoot, uh, we've reached a point where, uh, and I'm sure if, if you're aware of this and, 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 and people who will be listening are aware of this, but according to the latest ecological footprint measure, which, as I said, is, is, uh, represents demands on the planet, because we only got one planet, uh, in order to maintain the rate at which we use resources and generate waste into the future at the same rate, we would require 1.7 Earths. And of course, we've only got one. Now, the only reason why we're able to do that now, and the question's always asked when I say that, is how can you be using a rate of resources and generating a, a level of waste that can only be sustained by 1.7 Earths when we've only got one Earth, and that is because we're eating into the stock of natural capital. So we need to live off the so-called income. So if you think of a forest, uh, the forest is the stock. Uh, each year, new trees grow. You can harvest so many trees, uh, and as long as the harvest rate is no greater than the rate that the forest can regenerate, you can have timber forever. Uh, but of course, you can harvest timber at a rate faster than the forest regenerates, and you can do that for a period of time, but you can't do it indefinitely. But what you're really doing is you're just, of course, you're eating into the stock of trees, in other words, the forest. And that's what we're doing. We're eating into the stock of natural capital. So you can only do this for a period of time. In the case of climate change, what uh, we're doing here, it's not so much using resources faster than the natural environment can regenerate. This is a problem on the waste side. We're generating waste, in this case CO2 and other greenhouse gases, at a rate faster than the natural environment can safely assimilate those wastes, those, th those greenhouse gases. So the natural environment has a natural ability, ability to assimilate so many wastes, but in the case of uh, greenhouse gas emissions, we're emitting greenhouse gases at a rate of about 10 times what the natural environment uh, can uh, safely assimilate, uh, which means we've got to get emissions down to about 10% of what they are at present in, or in order for uh, net emissions to be zero. Right, so you don't, net, net zero emissions doesn't mean zero emissions. You can have emissions, but as long as those emissions are no greater than the ability of the natural environment to assimilate, those ways or our ability to somehow suck them out of and, and, and the technology really hasn't been developed to do that yet. But as long as we're emitting uh, greenhouse gases at a rate no faster than the environment can assimilate those waste, then uh, then 
your net zero, you've got net zero emissions. But that means reducing emissions to about 10% of their current level, which is going to be a very difficult thing to do uh, given the scale of the global economy. So moving to uh, renewables is going to be very important. But uh, one of the things about any new technology is it remains a parasite of the existing technology, which, of course, is non-renewables and fossil fuels. So one of the great concerns is that shift from non-renewables to renewables to the extent necessary to move to net zero emissions will, in fact, result in the uh, global carbon budget being overwhelmed and exceeded. So we may, in fact, exceed the global carbon budget just trying to get uh, to uh, or shift from non-renewables to renewables. And that's the result of the fact that we didn't start this process some time ago. And uh, we've got a much larger economy now than global economy than we had 50 years ago. So if we had have done this uh, a long time ago, started this process a long time ago, and the economy hadn't grown to the extent that it has. And it's had to grow to the extent that it has because, and I know I'm going to uh, um, delve into another fairly well, issue which is fairly controversial, but it is it is uh, an issue that I think is important, and that's, of course, population. Uh, I was born in 1964. Uh, in 1964, the population of human beings on Earth was 3.25 billion. Uh, we just passed 7.9 billion, and early next year we will pass 8 billion people. Uh, and in order to provide sufficient goods and services... Uh, for everyone on Earth to thrive, it's going to require a rate of resource throughput, which uh, is more than likely uh, going to continue to exceed the regenerative and waste assimilative capacity of the natural environment. That, that's a problem that we do have, and we have to deal with population, as well as um, uh, making the transition from non-renewable resources to renewable resources. So I, I read that in um, Vermont, Maryland, Washington, Hawaii, um, in 2014, they'd passed state government initiatives to consider the GPI in their budgeting decisions. So did you get any interesting data for it, from any of these places? Okay, so uh, in Vermont, they passed the led state legislation is saying that the... Uh, uh, the GPI for Vermont had to be calculated periodically. Those uh, who uh, played a part in having that uh, or introducing that bill into the state legislature uh, were hoping not only that the indicator would be uh, calculated periodically, but the, um, the results, the information would be used to inform policy. But there's nothing in the legislation that dictates that it has to be taken into consideration. So at this stage, it's just, I don't know if it's been updated since um, it was last calculated, uh, but uh, I don't think there's any uh, legislative requirement on the part of the state government to use the GPI to inform its uh, policy making. Or, or, it's, or it's very easy for it to pretend that it, that it is when it isn't. Okay. Um, yeah. The other thing I was going to ask you as well, I discovered there was a 1994 paper by Moffat and Williamson in a Scottish version of the GPI yes, called The Index of Sustainable Economic Welfare. Mm. The conclusion of the authors unfortunately stated that the information required for the indicators 
was not recorded. Mm. So I think this this is probably a problem for a lot of places where they don't actually collect enough data. Is that yeah. something that you get frustrated about? Yes. Uh, it's it's interesting. Uh, the uh, smaller the scale that you try to calculate the GPI, so um, a study was done, again, going back to Vermont, for the main city in, uh, uh, it's not the capital, but it's the, the largest, <laughs> and it's only a really a, a medium-sized town, uh, Burlington. They, they uh, Robert Costanza and, and some of his students calculated the GPI for Burlington, then for the county uh, and then for the state. And what you find is that the smaller the scale that you're calculating the GPI, the more difficult it is to calculate because of the lack of data. But, but the most frustrating thing, and, and, and this tells you something about uh, the priorities of, uh, of human beings to a large extent. Um, finding economic data is, is very easy. So the economic um, data that you need to calculate some of the, in particular, some of the benefit items is, is very easy to find. The, the, the social data to calculate some of the social costs is uh, not particularly good. The environmental data is a disgrace. <laughs> I mean, here we are. We're sending uh, rockets in recent years to Mars to try and discover what's on Mars uh, when we don't really know much about the natural environment on our own planet. We don't have the data uh, that uh, is required, uh, well, which would be, if we had it, would make it a lot easier to calculate some of these environmental costs. So it is very frustrating. So much priority on the da economic data, less on social and even less on environmental says something about the way we prioritize prioritize things we tend to put economic ahead of social and that well ahead of, of the environmental even though of course they're all interrelated they're all interrelated um, i mean we we can see that you know and we see in scotland let's take an example of it's going to take um, it's going to cost two million pounds to do up the local park okay mm -hmm. and that's a cost now that's a cost that everyone understands and they're able to they're able to say well that's more expensive than you know uh, than, than than some new buses or it's less expensive than a hospital but they're able to calculate that and again that's human nature to do that but on the other side how do you then say but the benefits from that park are x and that's where I think it's really difficult for people to start weighing that up because how do you calculate the benefits of a local park compared to how do you calculate the cost of that local park. Is there any way that the, the, the genuine progress indicator helps us define those types of benefits a bit more clearly? Well, uh, so what you uh, do with the GPI when it comes to government provision of services is uh, now a lot of, if you want to say, let's, let's count a park as part of the social infrastructure. Uh, you have to make assumptions with regard to certain types of spending, what percentage is welfare increasing and what is welfare maintaining? In other words, defensive and rehabilitative. So if that park is something that's being added that in fact adds to that town, that city's uh, as well-being, that will be counted as a benefit. Uh, but other infrastructure, like I was saying, the dike walls in... Uh, the Netherlands would be counted as uh, welfare maintaining. So uh, the value of that, as beneficial as it is, obviously, it, it, without it, uh, uh, that would cause enormous problems. But it's it's welfare maintaining, and and it's 
and they'll and in the case of the Netherlands, the, the dike walls are going to have to be uh, raised because of the impact of past and present economic activity, which will be reflected in the cost of climate change. Right, so that'll be a cost. Uh, so there won't be the additional benefits of raising the dike walls and the resource costs. So, in fact, the GPI is likely to go down, as I said before, in that sort of uh, situation. In the case of a park, uh, if that's genuinely considered to be welfare increasing, that will add to the GPI. It would also add to the GDP. So sometimes things that are included in the GDP, or, yeah, they do contribute to our well-being and, and they would add to our well-being similarly to uh, an increase in the GDP. It's difficult to put a number on that, isn't it, that outweighs the, outweighs the cost? Well, yes. Because that's the most obvious part. Yes, it is. Uh, you can do uh, surveys, uh, which I don't tend to do. Uh, you've probably heard of these methods where uh, people are surveyed and they're asked if once you've got the park, uh, if we took the park away from you, how much would you be willing to pay to maintain the park? And then you, you've heard it's back it. to money again, isn't it? It's just back <laughs> it to money. Back. Well, I think it's also down to data collection. I think you mm. know that's a that's a point I really want to make. I mean, it's clear that um, two things: governments and politicians have to stop thinking about countries as if they're businesses, because mm. a country is not a business, and they also have to stop thinking about. Um, currency as being a finite finite resource in the way that resources are mm. that politicians have to remember what the the really finite resources are and 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 just how finite they are and i think what you're telling about telling us about the genuine progress indicator really highlights that can i also just mention before you go as well you've just recently published a book phil can you tell us a little bit about that maybe we can get you back on to talk about that in another episode Towards so what's the, the title Tell us the title of this book. Sustainability and the New Economics. And okay. it is a book that is aimed at bringing modern monetary theory and ecological economics together. And uh, it hasn't been brought together in the past. Uh, and I think uh, it's not, they're not the only two heterodox schools of economics that need to be brought together. I think behavioural economics, you know, as you, you mentioned, I don't know, prior to the interview, uh, about uh, when you studied economics, it didn't make sense. And that's because economists make ridiculous assumptions about the way people think and what motivates them. Uh, when, of course, uh, we need to uh, take heed of what psychologists have got to say. <laughs> uh, we, we're not, uh, we're not, um, individuals uh, who operate you know, separate from the rest of society. We do think about other people when we make decisions. Um, so, yeah, so that's that's an area called behavioural economics. Uh, and health uh, economics surely would be very important too. Health you know, economics, did you say? Health economics. Yes, very much so, yeah. yeah. So a lot of these heterodox schools uh, seem to exist independently of each other and that creates problems I I don't want to sound too critical of uh, some of my friends who are um, modern monetary theorists, but I think they err when it comes to uh, some of their talk in relation to the natural environment or their lack of acknowledgement of environmental factors. Um, some of them talk about the need for more spending to promote more growth um, in order to reduce unemployment. I'm, in fact, of the belief that 
unemployment's not always about insufficient spending. It's also about the distribution of income. I think, for example, a country like Australia, where the official unemployment rate is fairly low at present, but if you take into account underemployment, the, the, the rate of labour underutilisation is still quite high, that we could fully employ everyone uh, without having to grow GDP at all, just by redistributing income through work. And, and I see the job guarantee, which you've probably had people on talking about the job guarantee, as a redistribution mechanism as much as a, as a full employment mechanism. Uh, so, you know, if you tax the rich, not to get the money in order to pay for this, but because they're too rich and uh, some of the resources that are freed up by the rich not being able to purchase as much stuff because they're not earning as much because you tax them more, can be made available to employ people. And without having to grow GDP, you can achieve full employment with a job guarantee. Yeah. So I think it's a distributional thing. Uh, but I'm critical of my ecological economics colleagues who are some of the worst when it comes to saying, we, well, how are we going to pay for something? And, uh, and, and the reason why that's really important from an ecological economic perspective is because you know, one of the things that's important in terms of resolving the climate change crisis is, is making the transition from non-renewables to renewables. A lot of the green renewable infrastructure will have public goods characteristics. And even mainstream economists will tell you that the private sector doesn't provide public goods in sufficient quantities. It's, it's, it's a role of government to provide public goods in sufficient quantities. Uh, well, if the question every time someone says, okay, the government's got to provide this is, well, where's the government going to come up with the money to pay for this, which a lot of ecological economists do, then they're shooting themselves in the foot, ecological economists. They need to recognise it's not a matter of whether there's enough money to make this transition, but whether there's enough real resources to make the transition from non-renewables to renewables. So a lot of the uh, ecological economists need to understand modern monetary theory. I think the modern monetary theorists need to understand some ecological economics, a bit of behavioural economics. There's a bit of post-Keynesian. You know, some of the yeah, it's always worthwhile dropping in that um, the IMF calculated that the um, developed or you know, the the global North during the COVID crisis injected thirteen trillion dollars into the economy. And you know when we're looking at the cost of the of the climate crisis. Um, 13 trillion was what was spent in just over a year. So when we when people say we can't afford things, I think it's really important mm. that we're able to say, well, we did, we can, we and we have, you know, and, and give yeah. these clear examples of when we've done that. And mm. you know what we are what, what governments are talking about dedicating to um the global south to solve the climate crisis, you know, is in the order of you know 200, 200 billion, which sounds like yeah. a huge amount until you compare it to 13 trillion. That's right. Although I don't know if it's the same where you are as it is in Australia, but uh, what I have found that uh, with all the pandemics uh, spending by the federal government, it really only debunked one of two myths in relation to government spending. I think the public now know that the government can find money when it needs it, but they're still being told that this has got to be paid back. Yeah. Right, we can yeah. get the money we can increase Absolutely. the spending now, but we're going to have to reduce it in the future uh, to pay this debt back. Uh, so uh, the government cannot say, well, we can't find money. It's clear that they can, but the public still think that this has to be repaid. So we still have that, that second myth to debunk that it, it's already paid for. It was paid for the moment someone at the Reserve Bank of Australia got 
on a computer keyboard and credited accounts with computer keystrokes. It was already paid for. Right Absolutely. But when you look at those figures, 13 trillion, just saying to someone, yes. how are you going to pay back your percentage of 13 trillion? It does, it, it's, debt, is, debt is not like that. It's not then It's been written off. We don't have to pay it back. But you're yes. absolutely right that that's so important mm -hmm. to get those both sides or, or two sides of that coin. Sorry, when, when I talk about debt, I think the best way to think of debt, because really when governments issue government bonds, it's not really debt. In fact, I don't often like to use the term debt because for me a debt is where in order to repay something you have to give up something real a real resource that's when it's a debt a uh, currency issuing central government when it repays bonds it doesn't have to give up something real so in that sense it's not a debt so debt should be something where you have to give up something real to repay something so for you and I State, but uh, local government, when when uh, yeah they, they have a so-called debt, they have to give up something real. As a, uh, but a, a monetary sovereign doesn't have to do that. So in that sense, it's not really what I call a debt. If you define debt as something where repaying it requires giving up something real, if it's just computer keystrokes, you're not giving up anything real at all. Yeah, and I think I think that's really and it brings you back to that thing of real resources, you know, and um, real resources are things like. Um, all the flora and fauna that you lost That's in that right. fire at the end of 2019. It's all the trees that have been pulled out from the roots or broken in half by the storm caused by that extra one degree, giving that storm yeah. extra energy. And these are real resources. And we have limited time to stop more of that from mm. happening. Our real resource constraint here is time, and that's why it's so important we get people to understand that the governments are not currency constrained, but they're resource constrained, that's and right. we're really time constrained. And we've really yeah. got to kick them up the backside mm -hmm. and get moving on this stuff very fast. Yeah, absolutely. Right across the planet, from Australia right to Scotland and everywhere yes. in between. Well, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Okay, Thank no you. worries. Thank you. Bye. Right, bye. bye. bye.